The following podcast may be a little dirty, but forget about that. I'm going to tell you to go to our Twitter feed at SlateGist.com. It's Wednesday, October 28th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. October 28th, meaning it was four years ago today that Hillary Clinton lost the election. Wait, the math doesn't add up for you? Well, don't take my word for it. Here's Hillary Clinton. But I was on the way to winning until the combination of Jim Comey's letter on October 28th and Russian WikiLeaks raised doubts in the minds of people who were inclined to vote for me but got scared off. So that was from an interview she did on CNN with Christiane Amanpour. And yeah, October 28th was the Jim Comey letter. To recap and remind, Jim Comey decided to warn Congress that he was opening a new investigation into a laptop owned by Anthony Weiner. Dear Mr. Chairman, he wrote to the Republican chairs of the Intel's committee, Senate and House. In previous congressional testimony, I referred to the fact that the FBI completed its investigation of former Secretary Clinton's personal email server. Due to recent developments, I am writing to supplement my previous testimony. In connection to an unrelated case, Wiener, the FBI has learned of the existence of emails that appear to be pertinent to the investigation. I'm writing to inform you that the investigation team briefed me on this yesterday, and I agree the FBI should take appropriate investigative steps designed to allow investigators to review these emails to determine whether they contain classified information. I cannot predict how long it will take us to complete this additional work. I believe it's important to update your committee about our efforts in light of my previous testimony. Minutes afterwards, after this letter was delivered to the Intel committees, members of the media got it. It was widely disseminated. Here was CNN's Evan Perez telling viewers four years ago today what to expect. This means that the investigation we three thought was over with uh, is now back open and the FBI is taking another look to see whether or not there's something here for them to, to pursue. Um, obviously, this is what Republicans have been, have been calling for because they believe that the uh, investigation was not done exactly uh, according to the procedures that the FBI usually uses in these types of investigations. So now this is another worry for the Clinton uh, campaign as uh, as we c- come to the closing days uh, before the election, Wolf. Wolf, obviously a reference to former Jay Giles band frontman Peter Wolf. You've heard on this show my discussion with Peter Strzok, who was part of the decision for Comey to go forward with his announcement. You also heard my discussion with the director of the Comey rule, Billy Ray, who said that the Comey laptop decision and announcement had nothing to do with Hillary Clinton's loss. So said Comey. So said Ray, as per his investigation in the process of researching a film told essentially from the perspective of Comey. So in a way, Billy Ray was right. It wasn't the reason Hillary Clinton lost. Her loss had many authors, primarily her own campaign's decisions. But the best evidence is that without that reinvestigation, reopening of the investigation, Hillary Clinton would have won. She lost a couple points in swing states and polls that picked up the announcement of that investigation. It cost her margins of 10,000 votes in Michigan, 23 in Wisconsin, 35,000 in Pennsylvania. That's the margins that she was defeated by. Oh, by the way, there was nothing on the laptop. Fun fact. Also, it did pretty much cost Hillary Clinton the election. Tragic fact. 
We've had four years to process the consequence of former FBI Director Comey's decision, and we have six more days to rectify it. On the show today, in Germany, everything's coming up COVID. Actually, not everything, because everything is locking down, which is the right thing to do, or as the president and Fox would have you believe, an admission that nothing works in the fight against this disease, desperately trying not to learn a lesson from a country with a quarter of the population of the U.S., but 95% fewer cases. But first, our look at close contests in close states continues. For electoral purposes, Texas is the biggest in-play prize of them all. They have there a somewhat close Senate race, a fairly close presidential race, and whoa, the House races. Race me through the break. I'll meet you on the other side as I talk to Scott Braddock, our North Star of the Lone Star State. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're going to play in Texas, you better have a fiddle in the band. But you know what band saying that? That was Alabama. Let's not listen to them. Let's listen to a man who knows Texas like, okay, I'm trying to think of uh, an analogy. Like, well, I, can uh, help, I can help you with where you're going. In go that ahead, song, Scott. Well, in that song, uh, you know, if you're going to play in Texas, you got to have a fiddle. The, one of the first things they talk about is they were doing a showdown in Houston, so it does qualify. Okay, that is the voice of Scott Braddock. He is the editor of the Quorum Report, and he is uh, one of the two hosts of the Texas Take podcast. He knows politics. Thanks for joining me again, Scott. Thanks for caring about Texas. Let's talk. I do. I do care about Texas. It is the second biggest state in my heart and in the country, in both population and size. Um, Is there a chance, because I've been hearing there might be, Mm -hmm. that a Democrat could win statewide and not only statewide, but that Democrat could be the vice president, former vice president Joe Biden, winning the vote of uh, Texas in the Electoral College? Possible? 
I suppose there's always a possibility, but I do want to temper everybody's expectations right out, out of the gate here that what I'm about to say is true until it's not, Mike. Um, there are more Republican voters in Texas than there are Democratic voters. There might even be more Democrats in Texas than Republicans, but it doesn't matter if they don't vote, right? So we're looking at the early voting totals now, and we're looking at all these polls that are coming in. And I'm sure you saw the New York Times Siena College poll uh, said that Trump is leading Biden 47 to 43 in Texas. The University of Houston poll uh, showed something similar, had uh, Biden down five uh, to President Trump in Texas. Now, we've seen some other polls, including the Quinnipiac poll just last week, had them tied at 47 apiece. I'll believe it when I see it. And the University of Texas Tyler poll showed over the weekend that Biden was up three within the margin of error. So these are uh, showing a tight race in general here, which is not usually the case in Texas at all. As you know, President Trump won Texas by nine points last time, but every presidential uh, candidate on the Republican side for a generation in Texas has previously won the state by double digits. So President Trump has definitely traded uh, votes in the Rust Belt for votes in the Sun Belt. Um, it's having a bad effect for Republicans down ballot in this state for sure, which is part of why, and you know, if you get into what's happening in the suburbs where I was traveling around last week, it's why it can be possible for President Trump to carry the state, but for Democrats to win the majority in the Texas House simultaneously. Right. So let's talk about all those races. But first of all, let's talk about the early vote and how it is structured. There's been a lot of reporting based on single ballot boxes per county. But sometimes in politics, for every reaction, there is an opposite reaction. So if the perception is that it might be harder to vote via these drop-off boxes, which from what I understand aren't a big part of Texas voting tradition, maybe right. that gets so much attention that what it does is spur people to just line up in traditional ways beforehand. It's a good observation. There's been so much back and forth in the courts about the way in which Texas voters are able to cast their ballot. The reaction to that, to all that uncertainty, may be that a lot of people want to be absolutely certain that their vote gets counted. When I was waking up at the early morning hours of the first day you could early vote a couple Tuesdays ago, I went down to my polling location in my neighborhood. And if I can, Mike, I would like to brag on my neighborhood for a second. This is a voting neighborhood in Austin. If there's a school board election, there's a line out the door. So I knew they were going to be all excited to vote for this one. And there were people who were waiting, you know, sleeping, you know, with their pillows on the sidewalk at 4 a.m. to be able to get there and cast their vote starting at 7 o'clock. This is an election. This isn't a new iPhone. People are, you know, thrilled to go do this. And people don't generally do something like that if they like what's in office right now, right? They want to make a change. Uh, and so we saw people doing the same thing in Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, all over the great state, uh, and in some of the smaller counties as well. More than 7 million people have voted now early in Texas. And one thing that the governor did to try to thread the needle uh, between the tension you know, between Republicans and Democrats on uh, how to handle the vote during the pandemic is Republicans do not want to see expansion of mail-in ballots, as you know all too well. Democrats were hoping for that. Uh, and so what the governor said uh, instead was he would allow for extra early voting. We have three weeks of early voting, almost a month of early voting now uh, in person rather than the two weeks that we usually get. Uh, and I was wondering if it was all going to be front loaded, if you know Democrats and others who are excited to go and vote in this thing would just vote you know, in the first couple of days early and then it would all kind of taper off. But in Harris County, which is one-fifth of the Texas electorate, that's where Houston is, each day of early voting in the first week 
They were voting at about 100,000 people each day, so it wasn't slowing down there. We could be on track to have about 12 million people vote in this election. And historically, if you look back at previous presidential elections, it would have hovered around 8 million, something like that. If you go back two midterms ago, in 2014, Mike, it was about 4 million people who voted in that election. Mm -hmm. Four years later, 8.4 million people, more than double, voted in that midterm in 2018 when Beto O'Rourke faced off with Ted Cruz. And so what does that mean for this next round of voting here? You wouldn't be surprised if you saw more than 12 million people vote. And on both sides, Democrats and Republicans, uh, those operatives uh, in both parties are sort of counting on the idea that the winner of a statewide election in Texas has to get at least 5.5 or 6 million votes. I think the perception from afar is that the power centers of Texas, or at least Governor Abbott, is doing what he can do to, I don't want to use the word suppress, but, Mm -hmm. you know, not make it as easy as possible to vote. But as you know from Texas, it's not all power rests with the governor and different county clerks and different local officials are doing a lot to expand voting. I've been reading a lot about actually how easy it is to vote in Harris County. Mm -hmm. So from what you've seen, is it easier or harder to vote for president in the 2020 election than it has been in past elections. You'll get pushback from people to what I'm about to say. It's easier to vote in Texas than it is in a lot of states where they don't even have early voting. Jessica Huseman, who does uh, some of the analysis for CNN and covers voting for them in ProPublica, you know, she's pointed out that in her estimation, it's easier to vote in Texas than it is in New York. Um, and this is in a broad sense. You know, what happens with our voting laws in Texas uh, is we have some things that tend to push people out at the margins, which it's easier to affect the elections when fewer people are voting. Going back to that 2014 election when 4 million people voted, if very few people were turned away at the polls because there were some poll workers who thought that you know their photo ID didn't match their face, that's one thing. It never should happen. But when you have so many people turning out in force in a place like Harris County, for example, as the prime example, it's harder for those things that impact the vote in a marginal way to really change the outcome. And you know, to your point about the things that they've done at the local level, in Harris County, they have invested 30, and this is over the course of the last year or so, they have invested about $30 million in expanding access to voting. We have drive-through voting in Harris County right now. One of the court battles that was going on uh, over the last couple of weeks was some Republicans wanted to stop the drive-through voting, which would have invalidated potentially about 80,000 votes in Harris County. And a lot of those would have been Republican votes, I'm sure, because a lot of people who are taking advantage of being able to drive through, a lot of them are in the western parts of the county, which is uh, pretty suburban and still trends pretty Republican. So let's talk about the Senate race. There we have the incumbent, powerful Senate Republican, John Cornyn. Mm-hmm. Now, a recent headline, and he has he has a lead from what I see in all the polls of you know low single digits to mid single digits. Mm-hmm. There was a story a few days ago. I'll read the headline in The Guardian. Republican senator tries to distance himself from Trump. He is who he is. But if you read the comments, I don't know. It didn't seem like so much of a distancing as maybe a statement of fact. He talked about his relationship to Trump being like a marriage where mm-hmm. people think they're going to change their spouse, but they're not <laughs> going to change him. So yeah. what do you think? Has, has a lot, maybe too much been made of the so-called distancing of Cornyn to Trump? And the second part of that question is, would he need to distance himself from Trump in the state? He must see some need to do that because these comments that you're talking about, uh, he said that to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram editorial board and that it got picked up in other places. It seemed interesting to me the timing of him 
uh, sort of re-emphasizing that fact for people as we head into the general election, as we get into early voting here. I think that some folks read those comments as sexist because the actual way he said it was, he might feel like a woman feels when she marries a man and thinks she's going to change him. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's his relationship with President Trump. Kind of interesting. One question that I thought was front and center as soon as that story came out is how many Trump supporters would read it and think, oh, wow, he's a rhino. Why would I vote for him? Maybe they would skip the race. But I can tell you just in observing conservative media in Texas and looking at the different reactions that Cornyn would get when he would go on various uh, conservative radio talk shows over the last couple of years, if there are those Republicans who think that he's not sufficiently pro-Trump enough, that's probably already baked in, you know, in the last couple of years, whenever uh, Cornyn would be promoted by one of these conservative shows, they would get some feedback from listeners and they'd say, why do you have that rhino on the air all the time? I don't think those people mm-hmm. are changing their minds based on anything that was in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Does he need to distance himself? Possibly. I would say that one thing interesting about those polls that you're citing, where it looks like President Trump is ahead by maybe four or five points, and and that varies based on which poll you're looking at, but that Cornyn has a more significant lead. I think Cornyn as a Republican over the course of his career, is more in the mold of Governor Abbott. These are mainstream Republicans. These are Republican classic, as has been said before. They may have a broader appeal. Look at the fact that in 2018, you had 500,000 people who voted for Beto O'Rourke and then voted for Greg Abbott and other Republicans down the ballot. And what those people and additional people who are voting for the very first time, what they're going to do when we don't even have the option of straight ticket voting anymore in Texas That's a big open question. So his opponent, MJ Hagar, look, to beat an established, uh, fairly well-respected incumbent in a state like Texas, where no Democrat has won statewide in hundreds of elections, you have to be a pretty special candidate. You liken it to the inside straight. I'll give you that. Maybe Beto O'Rourke was either that special candidate or running against an especially loathed incumbent. But Mm -hmm. I'm not sure from what I see, and I see less than you do, that MJ Hagar is this super, she has a great resume, but I don't know if she's this superstar candidate. And I don't know that either. It seems like she was checking all the boxes that Democratic Senate leadership in Washington wanted to be checked, uh, right? Isn't it interesting that just about every one of these quote unquote moderate Democrats across the country also happens to be, you know, a veteran, a fighter pilot or whatever. They, they all have the same yeah. bio. So that's what they were sort of looking for. I did think that it was healthy uh, for Democrats. Or an astronaut. It could be, or, if there is, if they're running <laughs> against the fighter pilot, then you'd counter with an astronaut. Definitely want an astronaut. That's right. Uh, you know, shoot as high as you can there. I mean, look, you have, you have, um, for the first time in a long time, a spirited primary for U.S. Senate on the Democratic side. And I think this speaks to how many people are fired up to vote for Democrats in a general sense in this general election. We only, before early voting, Mike, we had a few data points for how people were going to vote in Texas during a pandemic. In the July runoff, where it was a state senator from Dallas named Royce West, an African-American attorney against MJ Hager. They had almost a million people vote in the midst of a pandemic in a July election in Texas. The last time we had anything comparable would have been when about a million people voted when Senator Cruz won his July primary runoff against a former lieutenant governor, David Dewhurst. That's when there was not a pandemic. We had a, a special election as well for a state Senate seat. And I'll only mention it only because about double the number of people who would normally vote in a special election for a legislative seat like that about double the number of people voted in that in September. These numbers that we're seeing now for early voting doesn't surprise me. And um, I think we're only going to see it continue. 
Yeah, but to let the listeners in on the thesis that maybe Hagar isn't the best uh, candidate, who is Royce West, who she defeated in the Democratic primary? Who's he voting for? <laughs> well, he has said that he's uh, going to vote for Democrats up and down the ballot. However, he said uh, earlier that he would not vote for MJ Hager. We have in Hager someone who is a novice at running statewide in Texas or statewide anywhere. Although, you know, in her defense, Mike, previously it was the case that if you were going to be the Democratic nominee statewide for anything in Texas, that was the beginning of your retirement party from politics. You were not going to be doing it. We wouldn't see you again. Not true for Beto O'Rourke and maybe not true for MJ Hager now. But after her primary runoff was over and it was bitterly contested. Uh, she didn't do any of the work that's just sort of politics 101 of bringing the party back together. You know, out of a million people who voted in that runoff, the candidates were only separated by about 30,000 votes. And you would think uh, that the person who's now the Democratic nominee would try to get the other candidate on board with her. She did not do that at all. And in fact, at one point, he suggested, uh, West, who I've mentioned is African-American, he suggested that she has always had a problem with black folks, which is, you know, it's, it's, mm -hmm. always, it's always Democrats in this state. I usually just kick back with a cigar and just wait to see how they're going to screw it up when they've got the wind at their backs and they should be able to win. So let's talk about House races. Now, the Cook Political Report, they list competitive races, which are a range of likely Democrat to likely Republican. Mm -hmm. So in Texas, I think there are 13 races on this list. Two of them, likely Democrat, are Texas 7th and the 32nd. And then Dan Crenshaw's seat and three others are likely Republican. But if you look at all the races between lean Democrat and lean Republican, they're all held currently by Republicans. And I think that there are, as of today, six of those races. So where do you think the House races are going? The Democrats certainly have the wind at their backs. I would say that of those 13 or so, there's probably only really five or six that are really competitive. And I would think four of those are the ones to really watch, including the Crenshaw race that you mentioned. Um, you may have seen where Crenshaw released that uh, movie trailer <laughs> the the video that he called Texas Reloaded with these other congressional candidates, uh, with uh, these other Republicans who are running. But the deal with the congressional races that are being battled out in the suburbs of Texas is that, and I live in one of them, uh, Michael McCall is my congressman from here in the Austin area. And the dynamic is this. In all of these suburban races, including Chip Roy versus Wendy Davis, Michael McCall versus Mike Siegel, Dan Crenshaw versus Seema Lajavarian there in Houston, the Republicans are not identifying themselves as Republicans in their television commercials and when they talk out on the campaign trail. They like to portray themselves now, and this would not have been true even two and four years ago. They portray themselves now, Mike, as bipartisan problem solvers who will work with Democrats. Meantime, the Democrats are blowing up the Republicans in their ads as right-wing extremist Republicans. <laughs> uh, and so the pitch to the voters right now indicates to me that the Republican brand, which especially in the suburbs is seen as President Trump, full stop, it is very damaged and they're doing everything they can to try to divorce themselves from President Trump and in a larger sense, divorce themselves from the Republican brand itself. Uh, and when you look at these congressional races, uh, I think some of them are going to be down to the wire. And I would not be surprised, I don't make predictions, but I wouldn't be surprised if somebody like Dan Crenshaw was to lose his race. He was one of those who spoke recently. Uh, it was an interview with uh, Tim Alberta at Politico. And Crenshaw was saying that Trump is killing them in the suburbs. It's the same thing the uh, retiring speaker of the Texas House, Dennis Bonin, said 
in a surreptitious recording last year that Trump is killing us in the suburbs. And so we've got to do some different things to try to win. Yeah. And Dan Crenshaw has a pretty strong brand as something other than the Trumpiest of Trumpy Republicans. I mean, mm-hmm. he did that whole book tour last year. We didn't distance himself from Trump. He didn't he didn't denigrate Trump. Uh, he certainly said he supports the president. But if you paid attention, you would get the idea that this is sort of a guy like Ben Sass, maybe the future of the party. You'd hope it was if you were a little bit of a Trump-resistant Republican. Mm-hmm. And I think we do have a lot of Trump-resistant Republicans in Texas, uh, those who are in office and those who are voting right now. And those will be the ones who end up splitting their tickets in some of these races, which they can do more easily now because we don't have uh, the option of straight ticket voting anymore. Yeah. Last question. Joe Biden's answer on oil and fossil fuels in the last debate. How will that play in Texas? The president certainly wants it to play badly. Uh, he keeps bringing this up. Uh, he you know, recently tweeted out oil, guns and religion. You know, Biden is against all of them and that won't play well in Texas. It's the same thing that the president said earlier in the year uh, when he uh, made a trip to Midland, one of our oil towns here, of course. Look, I think when they get into those arguments, it has more to do with Pennsylvania in Texas, oil and gas is extremely important. The polling on oil and gas and the support for the industry in Texas is generally pretty positive, but people here don't necessarily have it as top of mind. And what I mean by that is this is a state of 30 million people with about 17 million registered voters and the direct jobs in oil and gas is about 400,000. It is important. It is key to our economy, but I think people are voting on issues that are a lot more diverse than just that. Scott Braddock is the editor of The Quorum Report. Quote, the best source journalist at the Capitol, says Texas Monthly. He does the Texas Take podcast for the Houston Chronicle, the co-host of that excellent podcast. Thanks so much, Scott. Great to talk to you. And now the spiel. I believe that most historians will conclude that when Donald Trump leaves office, he will have solidified his standing as the worst president of the last 150 years, without exception. I was interested to hear that John Kelly found Donald Trump to be the most flawed person he's ever known, without exception. I also think the coronavirus was the most mishandled crisis by any president, without exception. But that's not to say Donald Trump himself doesn't make exceptions. There's one pretty famous one that he trotted out prominently less than a week ago. With the exception of Abraham Lincoln, possible exception, but the exception of Abraham Lincoln, nobody has done what I've done. But there's another possible exception he's been referring to lately on the campaign trail. I will cut your taxes, not raise them, and I will always protect Medicare and Social Security, just like I've been doing. This election is a choice between a Trump recovery, and I call it a Trump Super recovery, because that's what's happening. You see the name. At a Biden depression. If he gets in, you're going to have a depression, the likes of which you've never seen before, with the possible exception of 1929. The possible exception of the Great Depression. So it's possible that whatever happens with the economy under Biden, it will only be as bad as the panic of 1896, or a little worse than the copper panic of 1789, during which the panic of 1792 took place, took place inside the copper panic, a panic within a panic. It's as if the band Panic at the Disco scored a remake of the Al Pacino film Panic in Needle Park. 
But these are not the only times Donald Trump has ever asked for an exception. Oh, no. Even during the coronavirus, the earliest days of coronavirus, Trump carved out an exception for the truly exceptional. Going to win. Going to close it out. While we mourn the tragic loss of life, and you can't mourn it any stronger than we're mourning it, the United States has produced dramatically better health outcomes than any other country with a possible exception of Germany. Couple things. One, the guy, strong mourner, the strongest of mourners, quality weeper, top-notch renderer of garments, the best. But unlike Lincoln or the Great Depression... Germany's response to the coronavirus isn't the, I don't know, two of the six historical events that every second grader knows. I mean, Germany's success against the coronavirus is a little less widely acknowledged, less so now than when Trump said it, which was April 18th. Today, I do not think he would say that. In fact, he has now reverted to his usual mode, which is to speak in absolutes. Everything is the biggest and the best. So when he compares himself to the greatest president, Lincoln, certainly he's saying that he, Trump, is the best. But, you know, he might be tied with the guy we all think of as the best. Maybe a dead heat with Lincoln. Same thing with the Great Depression. That was the worst, right? Because the greatest depression, which is the greatest divot, would be the biggest hole that our economy's ever been in. So he's saying that I have been the greatest, maybe tied with someone else. He will bring about the worst, possibly tied with the other worst time ever. But then you get to Germany. What's going on with Germany? Why is he adding that, or did he add that to his list of possible exceptions? Because now the talking point du jour is that Trump did the best that anyone could have ever done regarding coronavirus. And that Europe, which supposedly did everything right, is now experiencing a spike, meaning they did everything wrong. This is the Fox News talking point. It gets cited over and over last night by Laura Ingram. In Germany, check this out, thousands marched in Berlin over the weekend to protest their newest coronavirus restrictions as cases have surged, especially in Berlin. Now, you're not going to hear this on the other cable outlets. You're not going to hear it from a lot of the experts. But Europe now has 250,000 COVID deaths. And its nation's economies are in the toilet compared to ours. Again, understand this. Europe, which supposedly was the gold standard in managing COVID, now has more COVID deaths and they've wrecked their businesses, their economies. The facts show, and so will history, that Trump was right. Now, a graphic over Ingram's shoulder listed 250,000 deaths was credited to Johns Hopkins. I cannot find that number on the Johns Hopkins website. I did find on the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control, an agency of the EU, I found on their website the count of 213,207 deaths in all of the EU and the UK. Also right now, the US is at 227,000 deaths. So according to those statistics, the US has still experienced more COVID deaths than the EU. So maybe that's why mainstream media won't report it like Laura Ingram will, that the EU has a quarter of a million deaths, because it doesn't seem like that's true, or that the COVID death count in Europe has surpassed that of the US. That also seems untrue. But putting that aside, I mean, maybe I'm not seeing the right stats and those stats are correct. But maybe the big reason why the media isn't reporting this very meaningful stat that Ingram seems to think exonerates the president is that what it's saying, 
is that in a continent of 741 million people, they have around the same number as coronavirus deaths as our country of 330 million people, i.e. less than half the population of Europe. And it seems to me like a little more deaths, but if you want to say it's a little bit fewer, that's fine. It's still quite, quite shameful how the United States is doing as compared to Europe. Saying Corona is roaring back in Germany, saying German mitigation doesn't work, flies in the face of what the epidemiologists have told us all along. No real scientist predicted that without a vaccine, the virus was just going to go away. We all knew it would come in waves, in crests and troughs. The hope was the crests would be lower and less deadly that would occur otherwise without mitigation. Remember the concept of the hammer and the dance? The hammer is the lockdown. The dance is the resumption of activities carefully, gingerly, but with a mind that they could all halt. And Germany seems to be in a halting phase right now. Germany and France are both in a halting phase. They are lumped together uh, a little bit unfairly in the U.S. Germany has 20 million more people than France, but 25,000 fewer corona deaths. Also, Germany is spiking at over 10,000 daily cases. Yesterday, Wisconsin had almost 5,000 cases. Actually, I think a little more than 5,000 cases. But Germany's population is 80 million and Wisconsin's is just over 5 million. The point is Trump should be thinking, should be saying, but definitely should be thinking that Germany is an exception and that Germany has handled it well and that the United States should try to emulate Germany's fight against COVID. But that's not the story because he can't let it be the story. It has to all be put in the Trumpian terms of absolutes, of things magically going away, and of the EU and Germany doing worse than the United States. That must be the case because that's what Fox News is saying is the case. You know, I just think it's one thing if you want to have a debate between costs and trade-offs, that's legitimate. It's one thing if you want to say we made mistakes, but now we're really making strides. Or even you can excuse our mistakes, can't you? But if you and your handmaidens are saying we're entirely right and they're entirely wrong and we've been right all the time and they've been wrong all the time, I would say that it is in fact not the best. It's kind of the worst. And Laura Ingram is the worst propagandist on the worst network in America, with the possible exception of Hannity, Tucker, Fox and Friends, and Jesse Waters. That's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He kind of thought Miles Taylor might have been Banksy. Margaret Kelly, gist producer, thought Miles Taylor was secretly Mark Felt this whole time. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, thinks Miles Taylor was a member of Duran Duran. She still thinks that. Check the liner notes. The gist. Yeah, I didn't have Miles Taylor in my anonymous pool. I had uh, Karen Pence, Mike Pence, the gay bunny in the Pence household, and as a long shot, Bubalinski. Bubalinski. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Thanks for Bubalinsening. <laughs>